0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Fisheries Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Fish are amazing creatures with a diversity of colors, shapes, and sizes. They truly are a diverse group of animals, and so are humans. This podcast is more about people than fish, which is also the case in fisheries, believe it or not. Any fisheries manager will tell you, it's about working with people. The fish are the easy part.
1: Here we focus on people and on extremely important topics, including the benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the field of fisheries and aquatics. Sciences. Some topics may be uncomfortable at times, but this will be a safe zone from which everyone can learn. Although this is an initiative led by graduate students and supported by the American Fisheries Society and the Fisheries Podcast, it applies everywhere and to everyone and transcends fisheries. We strive for everyone to feel involved and included, no matter your country of origin, age, ethnicity, gender, religion, sexuality, and or disability. Hosts and guests are sharing their personal views, which they hold as their own.
0: Humans struggle between what is right right and wrong. Our personal morals and ethics are shaped by cultural norms and the ones that surround us, including our family, friends, classmates, and colleagues. Our podcast would like to critique your philosophy by challenging some of your personal beliefs regarding right and wrong.
1: We are so glad you chose to listen and open your mind to these very important conversations. Thank you for joining us. Hello and welcome everyone to the Fisheries Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. My name is Leon Gua, and I'm so excited to be joined here today by Dr. Ambrose Gerald Jr. He has been part of the American Fisheries Society for a very long time and has been engaged in An incredible career in marine and ocean sciences, as well as been the director of the Woods Hole Partnership Education Program, which has been a very successful program to bring college juniors and seniors from underrepresented groups in marine and ocean sciences, essentially to do some education and several weeks of coursework and then doing actual research internship with scientific institutions around Woods Hole. So the reason why I wanted to bring Ambrose here today is because I have been a part of a lot of conversations in regards to who is actually doing work in diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and accessibility. Often underrepresented minorities are heavily invested in diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and accessibility efforts, or DEJA efforts, and very often when we're hoping to make progress in our professional societies or workplaces, we're unfortunately turning to those underrepresented minorities for advice or expecting them to help plan or carry out these activities. In some cases, people do feel like they have the bandwidth for investing in these efforts. And in other cases, those folks are just trying to get through their schooling or their jobs and we shouldn't be expecting necessarily that they're engaging in these efforts. At the same time, we are also trying to find ways to build cohorts and find mentors for the younger generation, for our students, to have mentors who have similar lived experiences as them. And so, again, it means that we're kind of caught in this dichotomy of how do we make sure that we're having enough representation for our young students, as well as providing space for our underrepresented minority colleagues to just make progress in their own careers and have space for their own personal lives and and so on. So Ambrose says that someone who's had a full career and has been engaged heavily with Deja efforts throughout that career and being a Black man in marine and ocean sciences, I really wanted to talk with you about these experiences that you've had as someone who's been carrying out this work. So I wanted to start by asking you, what led you to become engaged in diversity, equity, and inclusion work? And at what point in your career were you?
2: Well, yeah, that's a um, interesting question and a rather profound question from my perspective. Where I began, frankly, I would say probably started in high school. And I say that because, and and maybe even junior high, so where does it start is really a question. I was involved, for example, in the Boy Scouts, and not just involved, I was a member of the Boy Scouts. I love being a Boy Scout. And I was involved and engaged in my church, my community. And so... I was viewed not knowing this then, but looking back and what various people would say or whatever. I was outgoing in many ways, as shy as I was in others. And so for example, and not to get bogged down into scouting and and what have you, but I'll just use this example. As I advanced in scouting, I became the senior patrol leader. My last year of scouting while in high school, I'm a life scout. I'm one merit badge from Eagle. And that had a lot to do with not being able to, but not all to do with not being able to satisfy the swimming merit badge requirement. I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland that period of my life, and, and it was doing segregation. While well, the U.S. Naval Academy was there, and I was a Navy, in a Navy family. My father is retired, Navy man was in the Navy, my grandfather, etc. And there was one or two small pools here and there. There was no pool that I could go to. So at any rate, I'm a life scout, but I became a senior patrol leader. And being senior patrol leader came with getting to go to annual camp week outing summer camp a week ahead of my troop in order to go and plan all the logistics and, and what have you for the week's activities that we would be engaged in with all of the other troops that would be attending our week. And in doing that, I was the only Black person there that week that I recall, adult or Boy Scout. And so it required me to, you know, engage with people across a spectrum of leadership and maturity. Adults, you know, my peer Boy Scouts, fellows who were there just like me to come and engage so that we could, you know, do all that was needed to do to prepare for our eventual week of our troop coming there. And at that time, Boar Scouting was was segregated also. And so I was in a black troop. And so at any rate, During that experience, I did not let anything hold me back in terms of engaging in every aspect of what was expected of me and what was in the directions and guidelines and whatever else that we had to use to make sure that we were effective in doing what we were there to do. And when I look back on that and I look at something like the evening where we'd come together, the campfire would be there and we're out in this outdoor amphitheater-like and and what have you. And I was called on to say or present or do things, you know, and I did it and I got the applause and I got whatever, like every other boy there, you see, in other words... I enmeshed myself into that week. And frankly, I didn't think of myself as being black or being whatever, Negro at that time or colored or whatever. I was a Boy Scout. And I just felt that week that I was treated as a Boy Scout like everybody else. So I want to say to you that when it comes to where did I start and get engaged in these efforts. Some of your engagement is by design. It's serendipity. It is just being somewhere at a given time and being who you are, making the most of it, engaging and having an impact, whether you know it or not. You see, but I know now as an adult, and of course, sometime after that, or where my troop got up there, and my scoutmaster and and the assistants who came along, you know, to now inform them of what. All the week was like what our orders are, so to say. You no, know, I'd say that because when I was in the Army, we would have referred to those as orders. So anyway, to me, Leon, it started at that period of my life. And then I was involved in other things in high school where we were everything from the choir. I was in the choir four years of high school. And, and, and then the ensemble and a little quartet and all this stuff. And we then were ambassadors in many ways, because we were going to St. Mary's, we were going to Annapolis High, we were going, these were the white schools, you see, but we were expected to go and engage, present, whatever, and of course, be on our best behavior. And then I'm a military brat, and we were one of the few in Annapolis who then went from living in segregated housing to integrated housing, because for a couple of the years before my dad returned, Hard. We lived in the North Seven Village, which was for military personnel. There, I developed friendships and relationships with non-blacks, and then I spent a good portion of the year at Fort Meade, assisting with my aunt, my mother's next to the youngest sister, who was had recently married and then got pregnant. And they didn't want her to live there alone by herself. And so I went to stay with her. But that meant I had to traverse some 20-some miles by bus to the one high school that was for blacks in the whole Arundel County of Maryland, which is the seat of Maryland's capital, Annapolis. There was only one high school for blacks in the whole county. And so even if you live abutted the Baltimore line or Baltimore County line, those students had to traverse some 27 miles or more each day one way to get to that one high school for blacks. And so living on that post, though, was integrated, military personnel and whatever. from off. So here again, I got to interact with people different from my traditional background, in a sense. And I'm only saying is that we as minorities or we as people from underrepresented populations in these areas where we are still locked out in many ways, we come to this space already prepared in many ways, to engage with white people. Many white people have never had anything to do with anyone other than white people, you see. And so that's why I say it's kind of hard to answer that question because this is a part of who I am. And that's where I realize, as unfair as it is in many ways, where we do not get recognized for our work in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and welcoming and equal opportunity. In many ways, we know we should, and the system knows we should, and it should not be asking anyone to do work that they're not compensated for, recognized for, and appreciated for. But we do it because it's part of who we are. It's in our DNA. It's, I'm Black every day I get up, you see, and that's not going to go away. And that's not going to change how I'm viewed, treated, or, or the expectations often by others that I have no control over. And so, I also, at an early age, whether I would have known to use the term or not, I've always viewed this as my moral responsibility. It's both a personal, and then it became a professional responsibility that I took on. I would be doing this, I would have my eyes, ears open and observing the environment I'm working in, or the climate I'm in, or the, that I'm studying in. When I see images, when I see photos, pictures, graphics, and I see all white people, my mind is saying, whoa, right away, you know, geez, that could be a government-sponsored opportunity, activity that we all pay taxes for. Well, I'm only seeing white people in this. And, and so it is... Who we are, I think. Now, should we not operationalize it, put some structure to it, put some ownership to it from an organization or institution or job point of view? Yes, people should be compensated. And it should be viewed as valuable work that is helping these entities do what they say they're they want to do or they're doing and go beyond just saying to actually actualizing, practicing diversity, equity, inclusion, and and welcoming.
1: Yes, Ambrose, I really appreciate your answer to that question, actually, because that's honestly not what I was expecting you to say at all. And I think what I have talked to people about, but I didn't process in my asking that question is just this sense that you're saying by literally existing in a space, a predominantly white space, and engaging with the people there, you are essentially already performing labor, because you are having to learn the culture, learn the language, learn the visuals, be able to speak the same language. And that is a lot of labor in itself.
2: You have to be able to survive, you have to survive. And and it does mean understanding the environment, the culture here in every creature must understand or be aware of its environment in order to survive. And and then you start, we as humans, then what does that all mean, surviving and what have you? And What are the levels of survival? Are there qualities uh, that we can associate with levels of survival? What quality of life do you want? Uh, You have to learn the game and you have to know where you come into it. And I think that requires us to be comfortable with ourselves, who we are, and not be defined by others or what others think is important for us or what we should want or not. And I also, it's another subject that we could go in and in itself, success what is success? And who gets to define success? You see, I as one coming out of segregation and uh, having to study, to pay attention, to work hard, to be reliable, dependable, and, and you name it. So what is success for somebody like me coming out of an environment where it was legal to segregate against me? It was legal for me not to be able to go to the library and read a book it was legal for me not to be able to sit down Mm -hmm. in a, restaurant and have an ice cream cone on a hot day in some places steamy as Annapolis in the summer. If I'm juxtapositioning that to individuals who could comfortably go into the library at will, could comfortably go sit down and have a sandwich or an ice cream cone or a dish of ice cream or whatever at a restaurant, could go to a pool, could go do this, could be in this part of town or this geography, could go hunting when they wanted to, swimming, fishing, boating. But I have all these limits. And so today, if I look at myself and the road I have had to hoe to get here, and I look at some of my peers and the road they had to hold, does it mean they didn't have some bumps, some up and downs? But how am I going to say what my success means compared to their success? You see who's successful here and how successful are they? So this is another area when we're throwing this idea of success out there. Who's success and who's getting to define what success is?
1: Yeah, this is a really challenging topic. And I was recently part of a workshop where this idea came up of the meritocracy, especially in academia and research institutions, where there's very certain things which are considered to be indicators of success and help you get promoted and become a successful scientist or researcher or professional. And one person just brought up this really good point of why are we trying to bring marginalized or underrepresented people and force them into this model of success and this model of meritocracy? Why are we not considering how we can redefine what is success and how that can be a more inclusive picture, right? So they're kind of suggesting how do we blow up the system, essentially?
2: (laughs) Well, Which is it a- is, because what you're asking people to do is you're asking them to come into a predominantly white space or white space. And it's not just a predominantly white space. It's a space when we look at power that is controlled by white people. And that is either through omission or commission. It is either through direct or indirect means. You have white people in these spaces that perhaps they just think, well, I'm just here. I'm just, you know, I'm here and I'm not thinking about any of these things. And so I'm not the one in control. I don't have the power here to say someone different can come into or cannot come into this space. But they do have power, you see. They have the power of their privilege to be there to enable, engage, and sustain that space by just being themselves. And they may choose or may not choose to be engaged or to become informed or to ask questions. You know, what's right or what's wrong or what doesn't feel good about this being in all-white space? in a pluralistic society or a society that has the demographics that we are experiencing now. I mean, how long can people go on being okay, the only ones around the table, making decisions about this good earth, making decisions, you know, about what we will or won't do that's supported by government funding, for example, and we all pay taxes. So when we're talking about success, meritocracy or what have you, I did not have the privilege, even when I got to graduate school of woe me, woe colored negro black me. No, uh uh-uh. uh. Go on and um your parents, your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, community, teachers, you know, your faith, everything have already instilled in you that you're somebody and that you can feel good about who you are. And you don't have to give that up to be able to engage in conversation or
0: dialogue
2: or or what have you with people who are different from you. And you don't have to uh, be disrespected by those who would disrespect you either. You find ways to let them know I don't appreciate this or I do not appreciate your disrespect and I will not be disrespected. I had to do that along the way. But I also knew that when I showed up at Oklahoma State University, the only black in the zoology department, faculty, student, janitor, custodial staff, I should say, or whatever, or student assistants, I was the only one. And I had a choice, I felt, to know what I was there for and to go after that and stick to it. And and that meant figuring out How to build relationships and not be turned off by negative people who mean you no good. We often, as I say, go into these spaces already having a tremendous amount of experience working with and engaging with white people. But more often than not, whether they're your teacher, department leader, dean, president, they've had no experience or little of any working with or just even socializing. Yes, indeed, socializing. That is where we are woefully in the dumps. Is um, it is still a monumental barrier there you know, getting through authentic socialization or or socializing between cultures or people from different backgrounds. And that's part of the problem also.
1: Ambrose, I've heard you say so many times today and in previous times that you were in many situations where you were the only Black person in the room. And so in trying to make progress in your career, in your early career, or even, you know, mid career, and then having to have that burden, not only of being the only person of, you know, your lived experience in those predominantly white spaces, as well as trying to then actively do some of these diversity, equity, inclusion efforts later on. What was that like for you personally? I'm sure that it was challenging, but do you, do you go through periods of of frustration and burnout? their periods of joy is it you said it feels like it's a moral obligation that you have so do you just always have a persistent feeling of I can make it through this <laughs> I'm just curious how you personally I guess have grappled with this throughout your career
2: you know, when I think back on it, part of that being comfortable in my own skin (laughs) also comes from the first 11 years of my life. I grew up on my father's family farm, which we still own in North Carolina. And there was a saying there, the sun didn't rise on anybody's behind but ours. And... uh, (laughs) And so we were out there at sunrise and sunset, making that farm go to make sure we could get those cash crops on time to the market. So you could compete and earn your keep, you know. So that's part of my DNA, too, (laughs) or my training (laughs) of being comfortable with who I am. And so when I was at North 7 living in now an integrated community, or when I was at Fort Meade, or when I was in college or high school and went off to camp and I'm now the only black guy in all these hundreds of boys and and leaders and stuff. Or when, you know, I was in college and engaged in various outreach things out into the community, you know, around our engagement or or my fraternity or whatever. And then I worked in Philadelphia as a chemist, my first job out of uh, undergraduate school. And here again, I'm the only black guy in this lab, in this setting, you know. And um, so you had to make friends. You had to find, all right, who supports you and who doesn't and stay the hell out of the way of those who don't support you, you see, and not worry about them. And those who support you, then help you through the engagement and with others and what has to get done. And that's the way it was. And that when I got to grad school, right away, I mean, I was, when I got to grad school in 1967, what was it? Uh, we had uh, grad students of one in particular, I think it was two might have been from Mississippi, and they were from different parts of the South. They weren't all from Oklahoma, like me. I was known as an East Coaster, you know, one of them foreigners from back East. And so, at any rate, the N-word was used. The N-word was used by a couple of faculty members. One faculty member made it clear that he wanted to know people of color and black folks wouldn't even use people of color then in his class. But I knew the person who brought me there, recruited me, was in my corner, was supportive. I found out right away which of those faculty members were supportive. And I found out which of those graduate students were supportive. And those are the people that I, you know, would gravitate or we would gravitate to each other. I was invited by them to engage in, whether it was a meal pairing together, it was camping, or it was a canoe trip, or it was our field trips or whatever. Uh, and I, like Turn, invited them. And I, I always have been a good coop. So a lot of times when it was time we had to fix meals, I was happy to fix the meals. Okay. For everybody that was there. <laughs> so what I'm saying is how I got through those and my job here at Woods Hole, my job teaching at Lincoln University, or historically black college, at Howard University, a historically black college, no matter what environment you're in, you've got to rely on your values, who you are, and try to associate with black people, no matter what color they are, what how much money they got, or what their backgrounds are, or how educated educated they are. And that is part of it, you see, because if we think everybody is going to be a good person or is going to be someone that we resonate with or relate to, that's false reality. I mean, I had to tell my own children that just because someone is Black does not mean that that's someone you should be associated or affiliated. You have to be sagacious and choose carefully your associates and what have you. And that does not mean that we are talking about practicing discrimination of any kind or looking down our nose or unfavorably toward a human being because of his or her condition or who they are or what have you. But you must understand, you look for the qualities in people that you hope or align or reflect your qualities also. And, uh, and that'll help you get through these these tough spaces. Because those people who are strident and are activists against inclusion, diversity, equity, welcoming, equal opportunity, you may have an impact on them that you don't know in the long run, but you do not need to spend your energy and waste your time on them. Don't squander your time, money, energy on those people. Look for the positive and believe in yourself and uh, know who you are. And that'll get, it, get you through a lot of tough situations. I'll tell you a little story here. Um, when I was working here in Woods Hole, part of the leadership and whether it was fighting out the budget or planning or coordination, or whatever, and we would be in the rooms in the office where there was the director or whomever or wherever I should say. Good hey, folks, everybody's feeling free and talking and just getting work done. And you know, how are we going to figure out this tough situation? Or have we satisfied answering this question? And can we send it up the line to headquarters? Or out there to the region or whatever, and what's it going to do to our image, you know, who's going to come back at us, you know. And folks would use the term if you got to a point where, okay, here are the rules, regulations, statutes that you're supposed to abide by and practice. However, can we pass the red face test? And I said, the red face test? And I heard this more than once, and I figured it out. And then I was in a particular situation where my views were not settling too well with the leadership. And this term came up, well, whatever, I could do this until I'm red in the face. Now, it's used a little differently here. When I'm red in the face, then what can you pass the red face test? And I said, well, if you are waiting to see when my blankety blank blank is red, I'll be passed out on the floor. Okay. The red-based test can you pass is when you get ready to use slight of hand and can you get away with it, you see. So I saw this not only in terms of the mission and function, satisfying requirements and presenting or providing information, but I also saw it when it came to hiring and promotion and not compliance compliance too, but I'm, where someone is being corrected. There's a lot you learn by listening, not reacting to. And even when someone uses a derogatory or uses racist language or sexist language or a homophobic language or whatever, not at all times do you Respond immediately. And you just have to know, you know, not to be trite, but sometimes you have to know when to hold and when to fold and realize that there's this element that is will be contrary to. The idealism, contrary to the statutes, contrary to morals, contrary to what is right, just, and but have your eyes open and your ears and your mind open to recognize those individuals or those groups. And work with the ones that you can and be supportive and keep continuing to influence as best you can uh, the system to change. Because a lot of these, what we are really indirectly addressing is systemic issues, structural issues that have to be removed. But more importantly, we just cannot give up, you see. We cannot. Tomorrow, I'm still going be Black when I get up. I'm going to still let my age... When I go out there and drive that car, I'm still in the back of my mind. Am I going to be confronted today? Not because I've done something wrong or an infraction, but somebody might be having a bad day and see this black man driving this car. Or if I, you know, my wife and I were to go to a social, you might want to take that extra beer or wine or whatever, or cocktail. But You got to drive home in this Country, driving home for some is not as safe as it is for others.
1: Yeah, I feel like you covered a lot in that last answer. I hope there's something you can use.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if not, we we'll have to do it again. <laughs> of course. You're, I don't know you're, if I've answered any of the questions. You have, you I've have.
0: Yeah.
1: No, it's very, it's fairly interesting to hear about your experiences. And I mean, I just can't imagine the challenge that it must've been to be trying to make progress in your career and trying to decide when to speak up about something versus when to you said, I think you were saying like, you know, be try and listen, kind of observe what's going on. And I'm, I'm sure that there's a real art to that and that it's a, it's a big challenge to figure out which side to fall on um, in each of these situations.
2: And I didn't say it, but mainly it's standing up for your principles, sticking to your principles. And I think when you do that, all these things, whether you whether you knowingly as if you are there's a plan or I get up today and this is how I'm gonna engage with people or if this happens or that. No, it doesn't happen that way. We know that. But it's again, a lot of it is being comfortable in your own skin and not being threatened by someone else's inadequacy or their negativity, you know. And I just used to tell my son when he was on that hockey uh, rink, do not be thrown off by the N-word. That's what your opponents are going to do to try to throw you off because they want to win this game. No, Mm -hmm. you just keep going and you know that's just another word that somebody probably ignorant is uttering. And so that that should not concern you at all of this time, your goal is to help your team win that game, okay?
1: Ambrose, from what I hear, it sounds like you had a lot of strength and as you said, you've been comfortable in your own skin. You've been able to stick to your principles throughout your career. And sometimes I I worry about academia being kind of a survival of the fittest where it's the people who, who are able to have your ability to push through and make it through that. And I, it makes me wonder about those folks who don't necessarily have maybe that tough of consternation is not the right word. (laughs) Think of the word right in this moment, but you know they they might need a little bit more support, and in some cases
2: there's no yeah, discussion. and they do, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and and I respect that uh, that people do need resp- uh, support. Not everyone has the same constitution. That's and, the word
1: constitution. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and,
2: and and I realize that we have to realize that. And the other thing that I don't think I said, but is important, is that. I didn't do this alone. When I'm looking at how do I avoid this negative energy out here or not let it get me down, it doesn't mean that I didn't get angry and I didn't do some inappropriate things sometimes or respond inappropriately, but that wasn't the dominant thing. And it didn't take me over to I got numb to what I was there for or what I'm trying to do. I mean, i you know, I missed out on promotions. I saw people promoted over me. Uh, I also, all kinds of things happen. In other words, i was saying, I've got to put food on my table too, and I can't let this trip me up right now. I don't like it. Uh, I'm going to find a way to address it if I can. And often that was with people who would listen, you see. I do want to make it very clear that I had a lot of support, you know. And there were times when I was in grad school, I was ready to say, I don't need this degree. But there were a lot of things going on then. And it wasn't just the graduate school, or it wasn't the graduate school in many ways. It wasn't my major professor or whatever. It was me just wanting, I got to the point now, I've invested enough in this. I've put enough in this. We got together, a graduate professor always said, we're getting this degree together. You know, you're know, you not just getting it on your own. And so I'm ready to, to get out of here, you see. And I imagine you and so many of us have been through these graduate experiences. There are times when we wanted to just say, I had enough of this. But no, I've I've had battles, and I had to think about how to win those battles you know, or fight sometimes, and sometimes you certainly don't win the battle all the time because the battle goes on in many ways anyway, yeah, but i, I do want to certainly say that you know I had my mentors too and family and friends and people you know that in graduate school, one of the things was the just the friendship and camaraderie that I had with fellow graduate students that. You know, certainly were as much a part of my success getting through as uh, passing the, uh, the test or, or, or the course, completing the research, because it took a team even to do the research. You know, I was part of the cooperative fishery unit. We helped each other.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that, Ambrose. So it it helps me feel like the idea of mentorship and having supportive allies, colleagues is a a positive way that we can help students, early career professionals make it
2: through. It is extremely important. No one does this alone or does anything alone. Yes.
1: Well, thank you so much, Ambrose. Are there any final pearls of wisdom that you want to (laughs) bestow? To young people, mid-career people, retired folks, in relation to what we've been talking about today?
2: I would say to young people or anyone listening is find a way to appreciate yourself and that you are not adjacent to life. You are part of life. We as people of color, for example, when it comes to the outdoors whether it's fisheries, wildlife, geology, you name it. So often we have been made to feel or others see us as, as adjacent. We're not adjacent. We're part of this good earth. We're part of this environment. We're part of this ecology. And so we have as much appreciation for the sun when it rises as anyone else does, or that blade of grass out there or that wave that we see in the ocean. So just embrace yourselves, try to listen to your inner self and what your hopes, dreams, and aspirations are, and stick with that because there's a lot of noise around. And as much as you can, try to thwart being externally controlled by your peers, your friends, neighbors, your whatever situation you are in doesn't mean you do not engage or that you don't need each other or that you're as social as the next person or socialization is important to you. But try to focus on what it is you think you want to do. You want to be the expert, the go-to person for that makes you feel good and do what you need to do to satisfy the requirements to get there and have some fun along the way. But have good fun. Have some fun. Enjoy yourself as much as possible. Find happiness where you can enjoy. It is extremely important. And, uh, and that way, you feel good about yourself and you'll know how you want to be treated by your neighbor and you'll know how to treat your neighbor.
1: Beautifully said, Ambrose. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that everyone will have enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time here on the Fisheries Diversity and Inclusion
0: Podcast. Special thanks to the Fisheries Podcast for hosting us on their established feed at fisheriespodcast.podbean.com and for also tackling important diversity and inclusion topics in their normal feed. Also, find us and other diversity and inclusion resources on diversity.fisheries.com. The custom lo-fi music beats crafted by Darius Armstrong. Look for his music name, Karl Marx, on www.bandcamp.com/releases. We are very grateful to all those AFS leaders and members who have provided support and feedback as we have brought this podcast to life.